Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 129 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is Creating a Third-Party Risk Profile. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, a word from our sponsor, Euro Van Dyke, a Moody's analytics company. Today's podcast episode of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance is sponsored by Bureau Van Dyke, a Moody's analytics company. With information on more than 360 million companies, Bureau Van Dyke is the resource for company data, and they make it simple to compare companies internationally. Their flagship product, Orbis, is used to find, analyze, and compare companies worldwide for better decision-making and increased efficiency. Bureau Van Dyke recently announced its new Compliance Catalyst, which is a data-driven decision engine and risk management platform. Powered by Orbis, new Compliance Catalyst is a game-changer because nothing else combines data, technology, and people power into a single platform. Compliance Catalyst can streamline your KYC, AML, and anti-corruption research and make your client onboarding and customer due diligence process more reliable and efficient. Compliance Catalyst offers several unique advantages, including an integrated platform that combines your data, entity data from Bureau Van Dyke, and flexible due diligence screening, automated and enhanced, instant risk preview, and screening against watch lists and adverse media in seconds, customized dashboard, risk profiles and thresholds, screening and monitoring settings. As part of the Compliance Catalyst platform, several effective modules are provided, including AI-powered adverse media searches and reviews, shareholder power analyses, entity verification and resolution, and integrated enhanced due diligence services. If interested in a demo of the new Compliance Catalyst platform, please contact Bureau Van Dyke at americas at vdinfo.com or call 1-212-797-3550. Well, I wanted to return to the subject of third-party risk. Uh, it continues to be a major focus for most compliance programs. And here, in looking at the risk profile issue, my hope is to turn this into a little bit of a broader focus than just anti-corruption risks, OFAC risks, uh, how do you weigh all of these risks, and then how do you apply that to your third-party population. So, And then I'm going to return on another podcast episode and talk about monitoring and auditing. So without getting into all the background of the legal, you know, how important third-party risks and management, managing them are and all the legal implications, let's, uh, let's get right, dive right into it in terms of how you determine a risk profile. And we have to there look at uh, identifying uh, the relevant risks, weighing your risks, um, and making sure that your risk assessment process is effective that your compliance program and your controls relating to third parties are tailored to the risk and are do you update your uh, risks periodically and what are we talking about just in general uh, just to give a framework here in the types of third-party risk we're looking at foreign official interactions and bribery uh, international sanctions OFAC sanctions as well as uh, other uh, European Union sanctions other country programs 
money laundering, export licensing uh, to the extent you have, let's say, dual-use products in the United States. Uh, and you want to make sure that you look at reputational risk as well with regard to various categories of your third parties uh, and when we get into that. So generally, what's your purpose and what's your scope of your third-party risk management program? In general, I look at purpose is to protect your company's culture from third-party conduct, to you want to allocate resources to minimize risk through consistent risk ranking processes, protect the company from obviously legal harms, government investigations, litigation, collateral litigation, and obviously from reputational harm. The scope uh, in terms of your third parties, we have to define various classifications or types of third parties, agents, distributors, consultants, professionals, lobbyists, vendors, suppliers, every, every person that you deal with outside of your company who is not an employee of your company and how you interact with them. We want to look at, in terms of legal risks, I mentioned FCPA, sanctions, anti-money laundering through third-party payments, data and cybersecurity uh, is now a part of our third-party risk process and should be for obvious reasons, and uh, conflicts of interest from an ethic ri ethics risks, and obviously I've mentioned reputational risks. So we need to understand these risks and how they apply. Um, we also, of course, have financial misconduct or fraud risks that come up as well. So in this process, what we're looking at, we want to collect information. It's kind of a four-step process. We want to analyze and investigate our third parties and create a procedure for that. And we also want to create a procedure that allows for identification, uh, assessment of red flags, and then how you resolve those red flags and then what steps do you take uh, to, uh, to first identify your residual risks and then how do you mitigate those residual risks through contracting, representations and warranties, uh, legal opinions, uh, and other types of uh, audit steps, monitoring steps, having, let's say, risk-based monitoring programs. All of these are residual risk mitigation strategies. So we start off, obviously, with classifying our third parties. And one of the key factors that we look at in terms of third parties is who represents you from a legal perspective, who acts as an agent for you, and then obviously can create liability for you as an agent, and then obviously that can extend to sub-agents. Distributors are well-known, uh, and it's well-regarded well and really well-settled law that distributors, even those that blindly just sort of buy your product and then resell it, to the extent they're acting on uh, your behalf, and people have tried to argue that they're not in those clean sort of distributor situations, particularly in the healthcare and medical device industries, but that has not worked in terms of a way to limit your liability. So distributors and sub-distributors, customs and immigrations, uh, regulators, uh, as well as regula regulatory bodies that, let's say, inspect your plants, health and safety, environmental, all of these types of third parties that help you in interacting with the government uh, and represent you in various relationships uh, with foreign governments create uh, a total a class unto themselves uh, in terms of uh, assessing their third-party risk. 
closely related to that is go are any government-owned third parties, be it by a state-owned enterprise, be it by a foreign official who has, let's say, a, uh, an interest in the third party, uh, very common in the Middle East, for example, to find uh, foreign officials who have ownership in certain uh, third parties and provide services to the private sector. So that's uh, something that you have to identify, and then there are mitigation strategies and ways to ensure compliance with that. Professionals, obviously third-party professionals who also represent you, um, and those are sort of tax authorities, lawyers, uh, accountants, uh, any type of our lobbyists in particular who represent you in interacting with the government authorities. Uh, again, we have vendors and suppliers. And those vendors and suppliers, that's sort of a smaller subset. You've got to take a look at them uh, on the rep representational issue. I've been through this many, many times in terms of explaining that, a ven that many vendors and suppliers do not represent you and therefore cannot create FCPA liability. However, they can create OFAC liability, third-party uh, payment act, uh, action liability, uh, and obviously cybersecurity and data protection types of liabilities as well. Um, and so these are types, so uh, you always have to sort of carve up your vendors and suppliers uh, into representational versus non-representational uh, in terms of uh, looking at what kind of risk they create. I've mentioned sub-agents and sub-distributors. They seem to be uh, and continue to be a really difficult issue, particularly in the tech industry or where you have channel partners that uh, include uh, several layers of agents and distributors. Uh, legal liabilities can extend to those actions of sub-agents and sub-distributors. The difficulty uh, for technology companies, pharmaceutical and medical device companies, is you're relying on layers of agents and distributors, but you're not in privity with all of them, meaning you don't have control over them. Uh, and in that regard, you have to sort of push down through the people that you do have control of, let's say the immediate distributor, the immediate uh, person that you're doing business with, and push down requirements uh, that flow down as much as possible to the sub-agents and sub-distributors. If you have leverage, if you have the ability to um, sort of impose kind of requirements, that's important because then you can say to somebody, a distributor, you can't use a sub-distributor unless we approve that person. But it depends upon your leverage in the business relationship and ability to do that. Uh, so the risk strategy, the risk can be really significant here. Uh, uh, your ability to leverage your uh, market power in that situation is going to be really important in terms of getting visibility into the sub-distributors uh, or in sub-agents. Uh, we've mentioned uh, professionals and risks, and there we have, like I said, lawyers, accountants, business consultants, but there are a lot of high-risk um, interactions that, are call, that occur involving regulatory matters like in India with, re, uh, with regard to real estate issues, tax authorities, uh, judicial. Uh, we even had a case last year with the bribery of a judge. Uh, through the lawyers in uh, Latin America uh, relating to a tax dispute. Um, so professionals and risks uh, certainly create uh, important risks. 
OFAC third-party risks, we look at distributors and agents, and uh, we've talked about third-party risk for OFAC violations where you have a distributor who in turn sells into uh, Iran, for example. You have to get end-use visibility and end-use certification or end-use uh, types of uh, representations and warranties. Um, and so then we need robust documentation, contractual provisions, and like I said, uh, proactive auditing and end use assurances and documentation. The new frontier for OFAC, which people have heard me talk about a lot, is uh, your supply chain risks. And supply chain risks, uh, you know, looking at your supply chain akin to conflict minerals compliance. Uh, I've talked about the uh, ELF uh, case, the ELF cosmetics case, which uh, occurred in January 2019 the settlement where the liability uh, for OFAC violations extended to unknown sourcing from prohibited parties. Um, and in that situation, uh, you've got to be, you've got to get visibility into as much as you can of your supply chain to make sure that you're not sourcing from prohibited parties or prohibited countries as occurred in the OF case, uh, the ELF case. Um, going back to our distribution chain, uh, let me remind people in terms of OFAC liability, and a good example of a case was Apollo Aviation Group, which paid last year OFAC 210000 for violations of the Sudanese sanctions program. Apollo leased two aircraft en uh, engines to Company One uh, in the UAE, which subleased to a Ukrainian airline, Company Two, which then installed the engines on an aircraft of Sudan Airways, which was a prohibited entity at the time. Apollo was liable for Company Two's activities in the distribution chain, despite the fact that they that the lease uh, even included the uh, sort of a contractual provision. Uh, for certification of compliance. The lesson learned from this was that companies have to track your distribution uh, chain to ensure that you don't have a prohibited party in your distribution chain. So <clears throat> we have to look at information collection, defining our risk by class. So we've talked about representatives, uh, vendors or suppliers that uh, are representative as well. Um, that are and also include vendors or suppliers that are government owned or controlled or, or have foreign uh, government ownership or interact on your company's behalf with foreign government officials like a customs broker, for example. Same for professionals, professionals that are government owned or controlled or have foreign government ownership and or interact on the company's behalf with foreign government officials. After that, we look at vendors or suppliers. Uh, some factor that I like to use is transactions or, you know, revenues above a certain threshold for, for a uh, annual spend uh, or location and uh, include a geographic factor, which is uh, locations in a country, let's say, for example, would be CPI, uh, the, the uh, Corruption Perception Index of less than 50. Uh, and then you could carve up into another class, vendors or suppliers with transactions, annual spend below a certain amount, and locations in a country with CPI of greater than 50. So that's a way to sort of classify your third parties uh, from representatives, and then you divide up all your vendors or suppliers and professionals and use uh, these factors that I just went through to sort of classify them. 
and keep it simple. In other words, keep it simple of a, you know, a first tier of risk, a second tier of risk, and a third tier of risk, and stratify your third parties. And the way that I talked about was using a geographic area as a proxy for risk. So, for example, use the Corruption Perceptions Index, CPI, um, and also I would throw in uh, for getting OFAC in your supply chain um, factor in there, proximity to targeted countries like North Korea, Iran, Cuba. Um, and the reason I do that is because if you, if you carve up geographically or have some geographic factor to capture the uh, OFAC supply chain risk, um, what you're doing is basically saying if you're close to North Korea and you're using a vendor who's close to North Korea from China, let's say, then uh, at some point um, the geographic factor, the distance between a Chinese vendor and the location in North Korea becomes so great, let's say it's in the far western corner, of uh, China, it may it doesn't mean that there is a risk of sourcing from North Korea because of the geographic distance. Those that are close, however, it's more economical sometimes to use a North Korean supplier for the Chinese without telling uh, a certain company that you're supplying goods to, uh, and therefore the risk may be greater. So have some proximity to targeted countries uh, factor that takes into account. And then you look for annual spend and revenue just because that's another way to look at opportunities for misconduct, opportunities for violations to occur. And then you look at, uh, if you want, a length of relationship. So those, that's one way. Now let me uh, to carve up, and I want to take a moment just to talk about what are our cyber and data security threats. And this is sort of an evolving set of risks for third parties uh, that we see. Remember, and I want to take one moment to just talk about the cyber law, cybersecurity law in the U.S. is a patchwork of global statutes and regulations because Congress has basically failed to act. The patchwork includes state laws, obviously, but specific industry laws as well, HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, uh, which applies to banking customers, uh, and the FTC has been exercising authority uh, in this area, or trying to, at least with regard to data security. Um, and there obviously are cybersecurity, data privacy, and breach notification requirements. One place to look at, obviously, is the New York Department of Financial Services. And now we have, of course, the, the EU's GDPR, and now we have California's uh, CCPA. Um, and we have to be uh, mindful of those. Third parties, with regard to cyber and data security, can be used as a backdoor to circumvent cybersecurity. The best example of that is an air conditioning contractor who was the backdoor for Target uh, and the, the massive data breach that uh, Target suffered as a result of uh, credit card data and consumer data being accessed and released. And that was through a third party. And so right now, we have to take that into account in terms of inquiring as to their data security policies, their cybersecurity policies, are they encrypted, uh, and what protections they have. If they're in the cloud, who do they use, uh, where are they in the cloud, and what kind of uh, protections do we have there. So this is uh, sort of a new hot area to look at and start looking at asking your third parties about cyber risks. Um, we also see... Um, 
it's you know very likely that we'll see more and more third parties that deal with global companies as a target for a cyber criminal because uh, it's thought of as a, a quick way to circumvent whatever protections the third, the global company has. Um, and you know right now the estimates that I've seen are about you know maybe one quarter one third of companies assess, manage, and monitor their third party cyber risks. So uh, global companies have to conduct due diligence cybersecurity risk analysis and impose cybersecurity standards on their third parties, especially the small and medium-sized businesses. So those are sort of, uh, you know, the reason for including third-party screening uh, in there is definitely uh, you have to sort of add the cyber risks. So I've seen uh, information, the IT people from a company becoming part of the governance and third-party risk management process, which makes uh, total sense. Uh, and remember, in, uh, in, in putting together your, your third-party program, it's, it's important, uh, let me go back to what the Justice Department questions were from the FCPA guidance. Does the process for your third-party due diligence and risk management correspond to your enterprise risk associated with the activity? Has the process been integrated into procurement and vendor management? And uh, are you conducting appropriate due diligence, uh, recognizing that it varies based on industry, country, size, and nature of the transaction and historical relationship with the third party? The factors as we went through the classify and stratify uh, type of approach uh, that I've uh, mentioned to everybody here and we talked about uh, earlier is going to be a, a quick way and a way to sort of impose a consistent framework uh, on all your third parties for creating that risk profile that's that's going to under you know basically be your foundation undergird your uh, third party risk management program. Uh, we'll be back uh, soon, uh, you know, and I'm going to record a uh, podcast that's going to focus more on monitoring, what kind of program do you have, monitoring and uh, transaction testing and creating auditing and testing type of protocols uh, for your third-party program. And that's going to be uh, coming up soon, uh, potentially uh, in the next few weeks. So thanks for listening for today, and we'll come back and uh, listen to another one, uh, put together another one on third-party risk management. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can always contact me at my email address, Get the gist of it
Worse than me.